Hello everyone, welcome to the 14th and last episode of the Spigola year, our first year as a podcast, and today's is a special episode for me, a sad episode because it features a speech I gave, a eulogy dedicated to my best friend and best man, Chris Daffy. He was a lawyer and article clerk with me back in the late 90s and our friendship started from there. But in 2013, he took his own life on the night of the 21st, 22nd of December. He left a video message for his friends and family that talked about his long battle with depression, which was not a battle we knew about or understood. And a few weeks after Daff died, I delivered a eulogy along with three of his other close friends at the Memorial Park in Templestowe here in Melbourne. It was one of the first speeches I put up on the Speakola website. It was one of the reasons the Speakola website came to be. And so although the purpose of this podcast was never to feature my own speeches, today, the seventh anniversary of Daff's death, my eulogy to him is the feature speech. And I am the interviewee rather than the interviewer because earlier in the year I was interviewed about the Speakola project by Richard Feidler, who has a conversations show on ABC and also a podcast. And Richard talked to me about how the site started and I mentioned the inspiration of Chris Daffy and we talked about his life and the eulogy and how all this got started. So... Very kindly, Richard Feidler and ABC are allowing me to play the snippet of the interview that relates to DAF, so I'm going to play that, and then we're going to play the eulogy. And obviously many of the themes in this episode relate to depression, mental health, suicide, and if they are topics that are particularly troubling to you and you're feeling the mental health strain at this difficult time of the year then get in touch on all the normal numbers. And certainly for people who have lost someone to this disease, we really urge you to because um, one of the regrets is that not enough is done. Make the contact. Daff was an incredibly funny man. This episode, although it's had a somber beginning, will quickly move into the directions of light and comedy that he shone upon the world. He was funny in person. He was funny on the page. He was funny in speeches, and he loved speaking. He loved public speaking. As a school kid, he was the captain of his debating team. As a university student, he was picked in the Melbourne University team to debate at the World Championships in Princeton. He had a real knack, and he worked off script, and he was a master rebutter with an incredible ability to synthesize argument and to tear opponents apart in the best possible way. And I've got a little bit of him speaking up on Speakola because when we were article clerks, the article clerks had the job of entertaining the rest of the firm at the big mid-year firm function. And Daff was our front man. He stood up and he gave a little monologue at the start that was called, You Know You're an Article Clerk. You know, you're an article clerk, ladies and gentlemen. 
when you're sitting in a room full of people you hardly know. And you're sitting there and some guy storms into the room and he says to the people in the room that he's got some high-powered finance deal that he's organised. And you think, this is going to be exciting, I'm going to do something very interesting. The years of study are going to pay off. But then he adds a writer. He says, the first thing I need doing in this very exciting project is that I have 10,000 pages of documents. And these pages need to be A, spread over the widest area physically possible, B, numbered in reverse alphabetical order, and C, I want you to colour them in. Ladies and gentlemen, we all speak from experience when these types of things happen. And the thing is, you've got your normal response, the response you would have given when you were at uni. The person hands you the cradle and says, we'll toss them over to you, and suddenly your mouth's about to say, I'll tell you what you can do with your Faber-Castells. <laughs> and suddenly this sort of hidden dweeb that's been there for about 15 years starts shaking and you come out with, I think crayons would be a better go to <laughs> I worked with them extensively when I was at kindy. And you're listening to yourself and you're thinking, dear God, what has become of my life? <laughs> you know you're an Clark when you're sitting in a room full of a game people you hardly know. And someone has made the most appalling gag you have ever heard connected with mezzanine debt. And you turn around to the person next to you and you're about to say, who was that cornball? How bad was that gag? And suddenly you realise that everybody's laughing. <laughs> and they're laughing hard. And they're slapping their thighs at the mezzanine debt gag. And you have no idea. You're sitting there thinking, what is mezzanine debt? And how on earth could it possibly be funny? spend two very hard hours doing research on the UN, you present it to the partner, and you're really sort of excited, you thought I've done some great work, I really expect some kudos coming out of this one, and they say, thanks a lot for your work, Chris. I say, I'm sure my 13-year-old son, Waldo, is going to absolutely kick it in. fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields. If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. Fraud, sham, and hypocrisy. Change within the system. The hollow man of anger and bitterness all must be left to a bygone age. I understand victory! I understand sacrifice! Speak over. I may not get there with you. with Tony Wilson. Tony Wilson is mad about great speeches. And not just those classical, we will fight them on the beaches kind of speeches. All the magnificent and uplifting and tear-inducing, nation-building, heart-swelling words that are said during awards ceremonies and funerals and during university graduations and to near-empty houses of parliament by people who were very used to making speeches 
but also by those who've never made a speech in their lives. Tony Wilson is an author and a public speaker. You might remember him from when he won the second series of a delightful ABC TV documentary competition series called Race Around the World quite a while back. Tony has collected many of the world's great speeches, both the famous ones and lesser known, on his website that's called Speakola. It's one of the world's most comprehensive collections of speeches of all kinds. And the whole project began when Tony had to give the most difficult speech of his life. Hi, Tony. Oh, hi, Richard. How did your site Speak Older come to be? Well, it was started about five years ago. And I remember, unfortunately, in 2013, my best man died. Um, he committed suicide and it was a terrible and traumatic uh, time. And it meant that I delivered a eulogy. And I actually started thinking, I, I, I think I might have even delivered the set of speeches. I've done, you know, best man speeches, uh, wedding groom speech, um, birthday speeches for 50ths. And I'd done a, I'd even done an acceptance speech that you might remember, Richard for race around the world where I forgot to thank the other contestants. So um, <laughs> so I felt as though um, speaking was something I was really interested in and I, I was actually, um, I, I did a lot of corporate speaking and MC work as well. So it was a, a genuine passion and, and I found that every year I'd be visiting speeches I loved by masters. You know, I'd go and watch the I Have a Dream speech and I'd watch, I, I love this speech by David Foster Wallace called This Is Water and every year I'd be visiting on YouTube my favourite speeches and I, I started thinking where's the home? Like um, I know quotes have got a place called wiki quotes where if you want to quickly find a famous quote by a famous person you can look up wiki quote and it always comes up and I was thinking there's not really a hub for speeches, there's, there's not a place where all the great speeches live or, or at least um, where someone's attempted to curate uh, you know, a collection of great speeches. And so that's what I embarked upon. Tell me about the man that she wrote the eulogy for. Uh, he was a, he was a mercurial figure. I mean, I guess in retrospect, you start thinking of things like manic depression. And, and certainly when he died, he, he cited depression. He didn't say he had manic depression, but, but he was so funny and so creative. And, and he was really the light of my life. Um, you know, we would speak probably for half an hour on the phone every day. And, and he did, um, he did sort of quite eccentric and, and full on things like, you know, for our, for our dream team league, he, he created jumpers and he created theme songs and made a website himself so that for our fantasy football league, we could go on and, and you know, he had news releases and everything was sort of to uh, an extreme degree with Daff. And he made me laugh so much. And when it happened, this sort of disaster of him taking his own life, I, um, I was broadsided. But at the same time, as I sort of tried to clue things back into place retrospectively, I did kind of get a sense, you know, that there was... There was different behaviour, I guess, to, to um, other people I knew, and that's what made him so compelling. And four of us friends delivered a eulogy, and actually one of the nice things that's come out of his death is that we get together once a month and, and have drinks together at the Wesleyan, and um, it's a, a hotel here in Melbourne, and I actually feel as though, um, you know, I just wish he had been there for those, you know, because I think he drove a lot of the friendship with all of us, and I feel that he would have really enjoyed us making some of the running. There's a certain kind of friendship dynamic, Tony. I've had this in my own life as well, where you have a friendship that's based on stable friend and wild friend. Was it like that for you with, with Daff? He was a very selfless friend. 
he actually didn't give us much of a window into his self. He, he didn't ever speak about his depression at all, and that's a, re- a real regret. Didn't understand how much you know medical help he was getting, for example. But he was very caring as a friend, so he was always thinking of me. So there were things like, you know, when my son got diagnosed with cerebral palsy when he was three weeks old, you know, I was just in a massive trough and Daff was the one, you know, he went away and read a book on cerebral palsy, you know, and he, he said, I've read this book and this is what might happen and this might happen and it's interesting, have you heard of these treatments? And and he kind of went into that mode and, and so I sort of, I always think of that, you know, just how how much he, on the day of my first daughter was born, he, he made a box of of things that were of her city on that day. So she, he went around the streets and took photos of Melbourne of what the city looked like on the day she was born so that she could open up that up one day. And he kind of had, and, and collected the newspaper from that day. And he sort of had that extreme giving, empathetic personality. Um, and I guess there were extreme behaviours as well that we sort of found out about later. But um, it's just a real tragedy at some of the... The stars that burn the brightest find uh, living difficult. And yet, reading your eulogy, it seems a very large part of your friendship was based on remorseless, relentless, practical jokes. He, he was really funny, you know, and he was very competitive. And we went on a five-week trip together around Europe and, you know, and I, I catalogued a few of the, the memories of that time. You know, he used to play a game. <laughs> he used to have to play a game called Bonsoir or Bon Snub on the streets of Paris. You had to bowl up to a Parisian with a big bonsoir, and if they said bonsoir back, you <laughs> scored a bonsoir, and if they gave you a nose in the air, walk straight past, who are you, crazy person, then that was a bon snub. And, um, and, so, and then he would keep count of who got the most bonsoirs and who got the most bon snubs. And, you know, but that's the sort of thing where he invented the game, um, and you know, he was just so naturally funny. He wrote a novel called um, A Girl, A Smock, and a, and a Simple Plan, which was about his crush in grade six. It was about primary school life <laughs> and his crush in grade six. And he wrote it over three or four years. And he was, he was consumed by that book. He wanted it to be perfect. You know, I think he was very ambitious for his own um, writing and his own comic voice. And, and it actually, you know, it was one of those things where any of us who have written a novel know that it's a pretty difficult game out there in Australian publishing world. And, you know, I think he ended up being, you know, in some ways defeated by his writing. You know, he found it very hard to to cope with uh, maybe feelings of failure. But, I mean, I think getting a book published is a huge achievement on any front. But I don't think Daff felt that way in the end. He sounds like a person who had a, a roaring, complex and wonderful personality. What was the eulogy writing process like for you? I think anyone who's written a eulogy for someone that they just really loved... There's a, there's a sort of a pressure that descends on you. My goodness, this has to be good. And I went down to my office at the Abbotsford Convent and sealed myself away. And I, I actually, um, I had my start because he was, he was such a wonderful person. Was, and we had a meeting that was, you know how if you want a movie and you want something dramatic to happen in the first seconds of, of, um, of the couple meeting, well, this happened with Daph and I. We were at an article clerk's um, drinks and he actually keeled over and fainted. So there's 50 people in the room and he's fainted in the middle of the room. 
and you think, oh, no, this poor person. And everyone's huddled in, you know, like, oh, is he okay? And his eyes flick open and he threw his hand up and he said, hi, Chris Daffy. So he introduced himself to the surrounding circle, had the sort of presence and quickness of mind to make a joke of his own position. Wow, um, what a way to walk into your life. It is such a dramatic uh, entry moment. And so that was a way of, of starting the eulogy, and I could describe that day. Um, and I guess, you know, one thing I've learnt over the curating of the site is that compiling anecdotes and collecting stories about the relationship are, are what ends up, you know, increasing the power of the speech. And, and so I actually wrote it over about a two or a three or a four hour period. And I actually just remember uh, when I started talking about that box that he made for for my daughter i just was i was just sobbing into the keyboard one of those because you, you're shattered anyway it's always in the days after this event's happened and i just remember you know losing it pretty much but i also knew it was really good so it was a point of as a writer i kind of thought you know that's about as good as i can do and probably read the speech a hundred times so sometimes it's the way i um reconnect with with that time and and that relationship the word eulogy means to heap praise on someone. We don't do that so much anymore, do we? We don't just heap praise on the dead person. I think that's absolutely right. And I also think it's been a, a moving art form. So the, in the, the old days, there was a sense that you catalogued. You said they were born at this time in this hospital, and then they went to this school, and then they went to university. And it's, it was kind of a, a distant obituary type feel, almost the newspaper piece um, that was done from the podium. But um, I think... Um, Maybe people have become more comfortable with emotion, and if you give yourself over to the emotion and the stories of the relationship, then that's actually what the audience want. They want to probably have a bit of a cry and a laugh in that uh, all-important 10 minutes or 20 minutes that, that have been given to the life. And, and for someone like me who's now been collecting them for five years, I, you know, I just love them. It doesn't matter really <laughs> – it doesn't matter how good the speaker is almost – it's the, the act of love, of remembering your family member or friend um, is, is just always powerful. So, I mean, there are some eulogies that are, you know, that, that go into the stratosphere because of the ability either of the wordsmith or the speaker. But really, um, one thing I tried to do on Speak Ola was to say, let's not just make it famous speeches. Let's, let's have the average person just giving their eulogy for their mum or their dad and, and sending that in to me. And I've got dozens of those eulogies up now. Thank you so much to the ABC and to Richard Feidler and Conversations for allowing me to republish the first 10 minutes of that interview. A big thank you also to Greenskin and Purple Skin Avocados. They have been with us from the start and we've done all of 2020 together right through lockdown. And this podcast was a bright light in my life during a difficult year here in Melbourne. So thanks a lot to Greenskin and Purple Skin Avocados. There has not been much work in the events and public speaking sectors with COVID-19. And I really appreciated that when the call went out in episode one of the podcast, I got the call from Trina at Greenskin and Purple Skin Avocados and they threw some money my way and it helped. So thank you. And over the course of these episodes, I have enthused perhaps as much as anyone ever has on a podcast about the nature 
of the avocado, and in particular, their perfect avocados. But thank you so much for the help. Thank you so much for the continued support. And if you want to find out more, go to greenskinavocados.com.au. Speak Ola so far has not been a revenue-raising project or website. And the plan is to put up a Patreon or Memberly in the next few days. So if you're feeling very Christmassy and want to support us with a sponsorship, you can visit speakola.com or look in the notes to this episode and you'll find ways where you can contribute to the Speakola bottom line. Well, it's now time to play the eulogy, one of the saddest and most difficult jobs I've ever had to do. Um, I have loved this speech. I've read it many times. I feel as though it does capture the friendship and the love that I had for Daff. Uh, when you hear the recording, you might hear a few little glitches. I didn't have great mic technique on that day. And so if the sound is blowing out slightly, that's an error in my record that I couldn't eliminate. But hopefully the power and the love that's behind this speech is still there. And um, so here it is. I first met Daff in the Minter Ellison boardroom at Market Street on a hot February day in 1996. We had what I remember as a brief hilarious chat before the event took a turn when Daff fainted unconscious right in the middle of the party. When his eyes flicked open there were about 50 people huddled around him and he had about two seconds to think before throwing a hand out from his position lying flat on his back. Chris Daffy, he said without missing a beat. <laughs> I knew he was something amazing then and there. I didn't get to speak to him anymore at that function because in Daff's words, HR had me in the lifts and out of the building before you could say public liability insurance. <laughs> I later found out that Daff wasn't as immediately sure about me. Like me, he kept this document with mugshots and profiles of all his fellow article clerks. Unlike me, he pencilled a first impression against each name. <laughs> R. Soul, spelt capital R. Soul, was the designation for future friend James Edwards. I was granted slightly more wiggle room, assessed merely as possible R. Soul. <laughs> Articles began, and so did our friendship. We'd meet in the level one pool room every day and spend hours drinking coke, eating sandwiches, and attempting to roll pool balls down the table in such a way that the number would hang perfectly still on the side. Ugly, we'd say, when the axis scrambled. Ooh, we'd say, if we got a perfect release. Whoever got more oohs over the lunchtime won. There was always a game, and there was always a winner. It was the early days of email, and God knows how many billable units were wasted as Daff corresponded not just with me, but with a growing number of Minter's colleagues caught in the beam of his charisma. Minter's called its email system the Minternet, and Daff, <laughs> Daff quickly worked out that the template had one important flaw. An unscrupulous sender could just spacebar his own name out of the from field and write the name of any person he might want to pretend to be. The result was sheer mayhem. I spent three hours flirting with a girl, 
thinking I was some chance for a date without knowing Daff was emailing in falsetto from his cubicle up on level eight. <laughs> I then attempted to get Daff back and indeed had a notable success posing as his then girlfriend Kerry. But I was a man out of my depth. The only thing that mitigates my joy is the knowledge you'll get me back, I wrote in my moment of triumph, which was exactly the same thing he wrote when the inevitable occurred. Yep, a phone message from my awfulest client wasn't actually from him. Not suspecting this, I hastily rang the awfulest client, pleading with him not to take the stupidest course imaginable. What are you talking about? He said to me. What the hell are you talking about? Yep, not for the first time. Daff had gone too far. <laughs> Amidst all the drudgery of that article's year, we had so much fun. There had been mid-year article clerks reviews before, but Daff turned ours into an extravaganza. In one sketch, he used artfully positioned pot plants, photocopier lids, chair backs, and assorted paraphernalia to film every article clerk getting about his or her loyally duties naked. I'll never forget Ben Liu on his tummy in centrefold pose, <laughs> his dignity protected by a BRW magazine. <laughs> there was the bit in which Daff and I stormed the front foyer of Blake Dawson Waldron dressed in chicken suits. There was a sign in the copy room that said, don't abuse the photocopiers. So Daff, Daff thought it would be funny if we found an old one and filmed ourselves smashing it up with a sledgehammer to the Carmina Burana. 12 angry article clerks, we called it. It was such a good time. I sometimes think it was the experience making that mid-year production together that encouraged both of us to pursue creative careers. Today I have such conflicted feelings about Daff's decision to write his novel. It was an agony to watch its progress. Not because the output wasn't terrific, it nearly always was, but because the words flowed like treacle. In true Daft style, he kept spreadsheets documenting his daily word count, and the numbers were sometimes in two figures. He'd ring me up, asking for a preference between two words. It doesn't matter, Daff, I'd say. Nobody will notice, just move on. But he couldn't. It had to be perfect. One year became two years, which became three years. He spent one of those at my parents' holiday place at Red Hill, calling me every night at 5pm when he went outside to watch the rabbits. Daff loved animals. The one member of our family who still doesn't know he's gone is his beloved Charlie Dog. The novel, when it finally came out in 2004, was brilliant. The working title was Impressing Jenny, but it was eventually called A Girl, A Smock and A Simple Plan. After all those years writing, Penguin assigned a woman who mainly edited gardening titles to whippersnipper Daff's prose. He fought a lot of battles in the edit, won enough for him to be justly proud of his novel, but perhaps lost the war. He said to me later that this awful disease has been with him eight years. Like I said, I have really conflicted feelings about the book. A Girl to Smock was partly memoir, partly fiction, and absolutely hilarious. Daff's recall of the primary school universe was phenomenal, and those painstakingly sculpted comedy, ma comedy maximised sentences 
were indeed pretty much perfect. One of my many favourite bits was this one. You see, the way I looked at it, the hardest part about primary school for Lucas must have been his lack of preparation for it. When he strolled through the gates on his way to Mrs McCauley's prep grade M, he would have had no idea whatsoever that he'd been handed a business card that said, Lucas Torby, dropkick. In fact, like almost all of us, he would have had quite the opposite idea. Years of being smothered by parental affection and encouragement leaves the average preschooler thinking he is the smartest, best-looking, most advanced little bundle of joy in the world ever. Parents rarely opt for honesty in assessing their children. No mother ever turns to his or her six-year-old daughter and says, Marcy, you're as dumb as you are hideous, but I love you anyway. <laughs> it's just praise, praise and more praise until every little trooper turning up for their first day of school thinks they're God's gift to humanity. If only parents fessed up to the lies they've told before they packed their kids off to school. If only fathers grabbed their sons by the shoulders before they sailed, sailed out the door and said, you know all that stuff your mother and I told you about being cute and clever and adorable? Well, it's a bunch of cobblers. You're actually a bit of a bonehead, son, and you might cop a little bit of stick out there because of it. <laughs> Daph was so naturally funny, so natural at everything. Writing probably wasn't even his top talent. His aptitude for maths was frightening, and he could sort and evaluate arguments like no person I've ever met. He often said he should have done law science. For years I've been telling him to become a politician or a political advisor or a speech writer or a barrister or a public speaking coach or a management consultant or a stock market analyst. His beloved pop trained in DAF and ear for injustice and so many of my political views were nurtured by his eloquence for a cause. He could also go completely off tap. Daff had literally hundreds of Yahoo email addresses, all of which have been blocked by Andrew Bolt's blog moderators. <laughs> Not many people know this, but he was also on Twitter, trading blows with right-wing trolls on hashtag OzPoll. The reason you might not be following him is also quintessentially Daff. When Charmaine joined Twitter and racked up more followers than the then barely tweeting at Chris Daffy, Daff said that part of her success could be credited to being a woman with a nice looking profile pic. To prove himself right, he took to Twitter as an unbelievably hot looking New Zealand woman named Libby, who just happened to love footy, dream team and politics. <laughs> Within months, he had a thousand followers. He also received a remarkable number of coffee or dinner requests from left-leaning, footy-loving males, some of whom were prominent media figures. Libby always declined. She wasn't that sort of girl. <laughs> Some of Libby's most popular tweets. If you watch the Die Hard series backwards, an old bald guy slowly learns how to act. <laughs> Gina Reinhart launches seven-step success in business course. Step one, inherit billion-dollar mining empire. Steps two to seven, enjoy. <laughs> Nick Rewalt claims outside forces destabilising club. All we want to do is train hard, play footy and take pics of each other's nads. <laughs> what does Andrew Bolt say when he sees himself naked in the mirror? Answer, God damn it, it's leaning left again. <laughs> our friendship was often quite competitive. In our dream team head-to-head, -head, his team, the Hindsight Mayors, leads 10-1 against my team, the Maribyrnong Mustangs. It is now a small comfort to know that in a time of desperation, this scoreline brought untold joy.
he once asked, how much better a footballer do you think you are than me? And I said, put it this way, Daff, if I toss this ball in the air for the rest of time, it will be up to me to decide whether you get to touch it again. <laughs> we played the game for the next five minutes and it ended with him round-arming me to the back of the head. We went through a phase of entering 25 words or less competitions and for New Year's Eve in the year 2000, Daff won a seven-course dinner for 10 on the balcony at South Bank overlooking the Yarra and the fireworks. I came second and won a slab of Crown Lager and a bottle opener. <laughs> when he rang to tell me, I was incredulous, moaning to him that his entry was the worst example of corporate toadying I had ever seen and that mine was clearly superior. He eventually shut me up saying, Willow, I'm inviting you. For F's sake, if anyone should be complaining, it's me. I've beaten you into a long second and you're a slab and a bottle opener up. <laughs> what a night that ended up being. Like Dodds, Daff would occasionally let me know I was still a new friend who still had a lot of work to do to get to that Ben, Lawson and Al A-level. Through sheer weight of time together, I got there. During Dream Team season, we spoke literally every day. In the off-season, we cooled it off two or three times a week. Daff was quite possibly better at being a friend than he was at all the other things combined. There were at least five of us who called Daff our best friend. We each had only one of him. I told him everything. He prided himself on being the vault. Nothing any of us confided ever went further than Daff. In 2004, Daff and I travelled overseas together. It was an amazing few weeks full of stories that have peppered the years since. Include walking the streets of Paris playing a game Daff called Bonsoir or Bon Snub. You picked a Parisian and with full eye contact and beaming smile, hit them with an enthusiastic bonsoir. If you got a bonsoir back, then it was a bonsoir. If you did not, then it was a bon snub. Most bonsoirs won. There was always a game and there was always a winner. Sprinting drunkenly through the cobblestone streets of Barcelona at midnight with Daff shouting, you have no cartilages, you have no cartilages, and me shouting back, I will chase you down like a dog. And I did chase him down like a dog. <laughs> Daff walking into a hotel bathroom to discover me asleep on the toilet. Oh God, Willow, he said as he woke me up, it's our Elvis moment. <laughs> Getting shot at by a Barcelona street kid with a toy bow and arrow and Daff found the kid the next day and bought his bow and arrow to give to me as a Christmas present. Daff was the most generous friend I've ever known. The presents were always spectacular. A carefully curated assortment of chocolates, a calendar of George W. Bushisms, a PlayStation 3 for Tam and my wedding that I can now hardly look at without crying. He was a big kid who loved kid stuff to the end. Swap cards, figurines, lightsabers, junior mints, endless, endless McDonald's. He spent nearly $1,000 on footy cards in the year 2012. <laughs> the last time he went to Red Hill, he took the skin off his face attempting the steepest part of the hill in a billy cart. No wonder the kids loved him. He played chasey with them like he wanted to because he actually did. He chased with intent, he chased for hours and hours and hours 
And it was only the last time he visited that I thought he's actually having to work at this today. I remember telling the kids to give Daff a rest. The gift I mentioned on Facebook this week is probably the one that means the most to us. When Tam was pregnant with our first, Daff barracked so hard for Polly to be born on his birthday. And when she was, he went around the streets of Melbourne taking photos to give to her so she could know what her city looked like on that day. He also gave her the newspaper front pages. They were the 24th of January twins, separated 35 years today. He even photoshopped his own head onto a baby's body <laughs> to put into his daft box. When's going to be the right day to give her that box of death? I can't believe this is happening. We all love you so much, Daph. Polly is wearing the blue butterfly necklace you gave her. She hasn't said a word to me about it. She just started wearing it when she heard the news. Tam is bursting into tears as she plays Wordament, the speed boggle game you got her addicted to. The big Wordament face-off never happened. Now it's not going to. Harry, the one you called the circus strongman, keeps asking, Daph going to come over? And I have to keep telling him that you won't be coming over now. Jack got to meet you, but now he won't really know you like the others. One day I'll tell him about the sort of person you were, that when he was born in 2011, it was you who read books on cerebral palsy, so you could talk to me about it. That it was you who went to this special effort for me, because you worried about how low I was getting. And I didn't do the same for you because you didn't want me to. Because you didn't want the dynamic of this friendship, this perfect friendship, to change. Because you were the fun one. Well, for me, Daph, it has changed now. And I don't want to be angry, and mostly I'm not. And one day I won't be at all. How could you have been in so much pain and told so few of us? How could I have not seen it? You say we couldn't have done anything, and I have to believe that we couldn't. But we'll never really know if enough was done. How can we? You once wrote a goodbye for me, Dad. It was for when I was leaving Minters, and it was short and funny, typically brilliant. I've kept it along with all your emails from that time. You called it Goodbye Mr Slips. You dubbed me the William the Conqueror of personal space invasion. <laughs> you noted t Tony's tendency to get up and close and personal during conversation. Introduced many lunch convenes to the concept of passive eating. <laughs> you said only a fool would sit through a meal with Tony in a suit that didn't match the colour of his order. <laughs> They're the sort of goodbyes we're supposed to be doing, Daff. Funny, shit-stirring goodbyes. I'm not ready for proper goodbyes. I'm not ready for goodbyes when the jokes have run out. I'm not ready for today. One of the few images I had of old age was of calling you from a retirement home to complain about Dream Team. How can we be stuck at 
How can it be forever? Turn one. I'll miss you so much, Daph, my best friend and my best man. I'll miss you and treasure you for the rest of my life. Well, that's the speech and the episode. Rest in peace, Daph. Seven years. I think of you often and what you would have made of things. A big thanks to the Daffy family, who I know feel this pain as acutely as anyone. Thanks for sharing that audio with me, John, Maureen and Carolyn, and thinking of you at this time of the year. It is the last episode of the year, and at this time of the year, I always make a list of the best speeches of the year. So if you visit the Speakola website, that will be up in the next few days. Thanks to Greenskin and Purpleskin Avocados. Thanks to Declan Fay, who's helped me with some technical questions this year. Thank you to David Bridie for the theme music. Have a happy Christmas, everyone. Holiday season, Hanukkah, whatever it is you're celebrating this time of year. Thanks for tuning in this year, making Speakola part of your podcast roster, if you have. Spread the word if you can. Rate or review if you're able on iTunes. It's been a real pleasure meeting guests, recording episodes, and having this as a bit of a distraction from the frustrations of 2020. Next year is going to be a better year. Looking forward to it, and I'll see you then.